0: Chapter 15 Honours are bollocks until one offers you one My bedroom as a young teenager at 10 Woods Lane, Cottingham looked onto the main road that was Northgate rather than the side road of Woods Lane at the front of the house. The view out of the window across our corner plot-sized garden, garage drive and then over the main road was one of a row of impressive, tall, aged cream-brick houses with large apex roofs, one of which was Kensington House, identified by its quaint sign above the front door. That I used to have to squint and strain to read this was an early indication that my eyesight was not all it should have been, but it was here that I could see the exotic and alluring teenage Fuster sisters as they came and went. Carol Fuster went on to marry Tim Winter, one of my big central defender adversaries from local football, and 50 years later she still works in their family's shoe shop in the village. Here she once accosted me to ask if I would give the after-dinner speech at a charity fundraiser she was organising. When I admitted my adolescent voyeurism back in the day, she responded by revealing how my incessant football practice in our garden across the road used to drive her family mad. You kicking that bloody football that thudded against that wall for hours on end was like an interrogation torture, she said. We would have spilled any sort of beans to make you stop. An unlikely date would have been sufficient. I did the speech anyway, and a few more people got to know about the half a lettuce with a couple of them approaching me afterwards, saying that I should write a book. Thank you, I replied, but that's not going to happen. On the opposite side of the bedroom, to the window fixed above my bed, was a strange installation that had to have been made to order rather than purchased. Indeed, it had been made to order, via my brother-in-law, Len Parks, who was a senior draftsman at the Beverly shipyard of C.D. Homes. Yes, they did once make ships in Beverly, launching them sideways into the River Hull. The construction above my bed was like a big, wide, gaping white letterbox aperture, eight foot wide, one foot high and nine inches deep. It could have been a coffin for an alien stick insect, but for the fact that it was secured to the wall by its base. It was, in fact a clumsily designed but generously created trophy display cabinet that housed my medals and mementos, for Mother Dearest would not have them anywhere else in the house. On top were many of the framed certificates common at that time, denoting sporting success at school, from the high jump win at Hallgate Primary School Sports Day to the League and Cup wins of our champion football team. The story at Cottingham Secondary Modern was similar, with evidence of success in every year, right through to my county colours. There were medals and trophies from Cottingham boys in the Hull Boys Sunday League, and from the Fruit Trades team in the men's version. Pride of Place was given to a splendid memento presented to mark the East Riding Senior Cup win with Bridlington Town FC. I admit now to petulance in throwing away any runners-up medals which shows that I was only interested in winning, spanning the taking part being enough philosophy that my headmaster would tell the school. You can tell why we didn't get on. I think perhaps that there must be some sort of psychological need in me to prove myself, to tell the world that I'm worth something. I've obviously never had the belief and self-confidence to know that and feel it within. Sue, who knows me best, would have it as that, I'm sure. Prove what to whom, I can hear some people say accusatorially. Please allow me to make the case for the defence. When Sue and I took our son Patrick to Anfield for the stadium tour when he was a kid, we saw, in the foyer of the home of Liverpool FC, a splendid trophy cabinet packed with silverware with their five European Cup wins as the centrepiece. It was exactly the same at Old Trafford, where I took a group of kids as prize winners of our Biz Ed competition in Business Week 2006. When I played football, the response to anybody boasting about dubious ability was always, shows your medals, as a way of establishing credibility. This remains the main qualification in the beautiful game. In our Sewell Group reception today, we have the conundrum of whether or not to show our company accolades and achievements, including our five European Cups, ACCA Sunday Times Trophies, or adopt a new value of Be Humble. I agree that nobody likes a smart ass, but I do favour the exhibiting of achievements gained through hard work and talents. If you don't show that you are proud of what you've done, then the contrary could start to apply. November 2019 is proving to be cold and wet, although there are none of the white over frost and ice windows of my youth. I am onto what I believe will be the last leaf in the half a lettuce, and this is not before time. My right hand index finger and the iPad screen are pretty tired of each other by now, and I have always believed that six months is more than enough for any initiative to make its desired impact. I am at home in my study writing this, and, as with any of us lucky enough to have our own personal space, a look around will tell you a lot about me. It is what some would call untidy, but I would call homely. With business papers and reports in haphazard piles, the relaxed chaos of older age having slowly replaced the necessary fastidiousness of mid career. If that career is running its course as per this memoir, from the aspiring chapters 1 to 6, to the perspiring chapters 7 to 12, to these now expiring chapters 13 to 15, the room probably reflects that. Although the new investment company I am forming, called Half a Lettuce Limited, to work with and invest in entrepreneurs who I like, perhaps suggests that I'm actually moving back to my roots while getting out of the way of the fabulous people now running the Sewell Group day to day. On the front desk spanning the window are two globes of the world, in case I lose one. A pile of 28 pens, in case I lose 25. And a collection of multivarious sunglasses, which could mean that this room is inhabited by either a rock star or somebody with eye problems. Two maroon leather chairs face this perimeter desk area and look out of the window onto the front garden and a beautiful weeping willow that I planted 25 years ago, majestically trailing its green branches into our lovely elliptical pond. Ducks and a resident family of mohens provide entertainment against the idyllic backdrop of the most peaceful and relaxing of spaces that welcomes me every day when I come back home through the big timber front gates. To either side of the window are pictures that show how important family is to me, even in my business room and sanctuary. One is a colourful and lively collage of the May day in 2014 when we all went down to Wembley Stadium to cheer Hull City in the FA Cup final against Arsenal. Enduring the heartbreak of being two goals in front but still gloriously and graciously losing, as was expected. On the other side is a canvas showing images of Patrick and me in Vietnam cycling the Mekong Delta from Saigon to Cambodia. This is next to a photograph of me holding my 10-month-old baby grandson in a swimming pool under the blue skies of Cape Town, South Africa in the shadow of Table Mountain. These confirm to me how lucky we all are to see and know the world in such a way. My dad would have to be risking his life fighting for our freedom in order to experience any such faraway places. I reflect and sincerely hope that Patrick has a similar high quality relationship with his son as I have had with mine. The chairs look at the obligatory PC and printer and can swivel to face each other or turn 180 degrees to look over the other side of the room where there are two easy chairs and a coffee table. In case you think I may have matured from my insecure and self-promoting youth the armchairs are separated a splendid corner trophy cabinet this one is as beautiful as the narrow white box of my woods lane bedroom was ugly six light beach shelves with their sculptured edges and splayed ends make their elegant way from floor to ceiling carrying my memories and influences with them there are the books not many just the important ones no novels or biographies just business books that have shaped my thinking. I know people who read voraciously, but I cannot cope with a hundred mixed messages and prefer to take on a few simple personal principles. So I consort repeatedly with a few trusted and respected literary allies. Number one on that list would be Tom Peters, my American biz guru hero. From in search of excellence from the 1980s to reimagine at the turn of the millennium to the excellence dividend published in 2018, they are all there on the left-hand side of the middle shelf as my greatest single source of wisdom and strategic stimulation. Next to Tom are three small, slim mini-reads that teach big lessons. I like books that you can do in an hour. The One Minute Manager by Ken Blanchard succinctly explains the basic principles of people management and raving fans by the same author introduced me and us to proper superior customer service in the 90s. Who Moved My Cheese by Spencer Johnson is the seminal work on embracing change. Maverick is by the likeable Brazilian businessman Ricardo Semler. His visit to England in the late 90s showcased his struggle to put humanity into his firm's HR practices. I liked him a lot. Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea of Zappos.com agrees with us that kindness is a business strategy and that having an eccentric personality can be. Purple Cow and the Dip Both highlight useful truths by the very American Seth Godin and The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey was the seminal business and self-help book of the 1990s and is still relevant today. Works by friends and colleagues come next. Corporate Voodoo and Spike are both by my friend Rene Carriel, and Entrecode by even closer friend Professor David Hall. No White Flag is by rugby league legend Jamie Peacock, who became a friend while I was mentoring him in the transition from the world of sport into the world of business. All the business books by Richard Branson have been here at one time or another, but are now absent, either loaned and awaiting return, or lost forever. For the same reason, the only evidence of the works of Alan Johnson is a large, thin, beautifully coloured brochure entitled Inside Abbey Road, acquired on the memorable day we took over the iconic Studio 2 to launch the last of his memoirs in my life. I don't know which one of us was more transfixed in Beatles heaven as a bootleg band played their early works in the corner of that famous space, just as the Fab Four themselves would have done 50 years before. Even those four big final chords of twist and shout with subsequent theatrical bow were perfect. Finally, there are two works about the Sewell Group of which I am inordinately proud. Good to Grow is an insights report by the Social Mobility Pledge on best practice in creating opportunities for all, and Construction Project Excellence 2008-2013 is an academic paper by Hull University Business School on the superb delivery of the Building Schools for the Future and NHS lift programmes in Hull over a five-year period. Pictures and prints form a haphazard backdrop. The Rolling Stones and John Lennon and my school football team black and white photographs sent over from the States by Ian Grandage, are together with a few of my favourite cards received over the years. The most recent addition is a framed photograph given to me by my old school, now Cottingham High rather than Cottingham Secondary Modern, of me at their speech day after presenting the prizes. I composed a letter to my 16-year-old self that evening, reminding them that they had expelled me 50 years earlier, but admitting that I was a pain and they were right to do so. I have included this as Appendix 1 at the end of this book. Random piece of clutter personalize the space. Nigel Olsen's signed drumstick from the Elton John concert in Las Vegas, Eurythmic Dave Stewart's Nokia business card given to me at the YBC after-show dinner, and feathers from the Boston Tea Party that started the American War of Independence, a mini-leather old-style Manchester United football as a memento of their clash with Hull City at Old Trafford, makes a surprise appearance as does a rainbow wristband given to me at the UK Pride celebrations in 2017. The original tape of our 1969 recording, sent by John Revel, with its hit single, I've Been Left on the Shelf, survives, as does a booklet of images from my long walk down the Roman Lyceum Way in Turkey with Patrick. On the bottom shelf is a collection of CDs and memory sticks, the whole photo albums and films we made for the Yorkshire International Business Convention over 10 years. I love producing these to add to the delegates' experience of the day and especially introducing them to the music of The Killers and Noel Gallagher. A highlight is the Eurythmics' Dave Stewart composing a song called Future Proof live at the convention with the audience and uploading it on Tim Berners-Lee's internet so people could hear themselves that night when they got home. How fantastic is that? And a pretty decent song too. A standout, however, has only the rhythms and beats of African music, it being a film about our visit to the Ivory Coast to view a school for Victoria that we had been fundraising to build. Iconic newsreader and national treasure Fiona Bruce introduced the film for us, and she sets the background better than I can. Hello again, Haragus. Hello Hull, and for the first time, hello Bridlington. My name is Fiona Bruce, and I'm just taking a short break from filming here at the BBC to pass on a personal message of support to you during your Yorkshire International Business Convention. I think it's fantastic that it continues to get bigger and better, and I am pleased once more that you have agreed to support the Victoria Columbia Charitable Trust as your nominated charity. It remains a very small charity, but with one very big ambition, to build, open and help maintain a much-needed state school in Victoria's name in her hometown of Abobo, in the Ivory Coast. Abobo is a very deprived part of the Ivory Coast. There are no state schools in the area at present, which is why Victoria's parents let her travel to Europe in search of the education she couldn't get in the Ivory Coast. They still struggle to come to terms with the fact that their daughter was brutally murdered in the UK, but have always remained passionate about one thing, that a primary school would be built in Victoria's memory, so no other child will have to travel to Europe in search of an education they cannot get in the Ivory Coast. Put very simply, if the school you are helping to build had been available to Victoria, she would still be alive today. The facts are that stark. Because of the amazing generosity and help over the last two years from the convention, and despite a number of setbacks, these early dreams have become a fantastic reality. I'm so pleased to be able to tell you that because of your fantastic support, not only has the school been built, but it is bigger and better than anybody ever dreamed possible. And here's a short film on the recent trip on behalf of the convention to check on the progress being made and to understand what still needs to be done to help. The delegation consisted of myself, Mike Firth, Caroline Ingram from the charity, Carolyn Burgess, the main sponsor of Business Week, and Nigel Richardson, the Director of Children's Services for Hull City Council. Nigel had sat on the harrowing inquiry into Victoria Columbia's death, conducted by Lord Laming, whose conclusions and report spawned the Children's Services Act. It being Nigel who brought this all to my attention in Whole Business Week. Unfortunately we, particularly Mike Firth and I, found things were not all as they should have been in a bobo. For a start, being held at gunpoint twice in this war-torn lawless state was not what we expected or signed up for. The second time this happened was on our way back from dinner one night and our car was stopped on a bridge by a group of soldiers. Nigel and I were marched unceremoniously to the edge to look down at the river many feet below. Our assailants pointing their automatic weapons directly at us. The irony being that they were the United Nations peacekeeping force endeavouring to make a few bob on the side but our indignant interpreter was adamantly refusing to let them do so. What do they want? I asked him. Money, our embarrassed guide Moore replied. How much? The equivalent of five pence each. Does bloody give them it, then, I berated him. I want my bed. No, this is not right that visitors to our country are treated like this. They cannot be allowed to get away with it, was his justification. I wasn't scared, just frustrated. Look more, just give them the fucking money and let's be out of here. He did thank God. That's one to dine out on, I said to Nigel on the drive back to the hotel in Abidjan. The next day we visited the school, or should I say, the white rendered western set, since it looked as if it was finished, but it wasn't. There were no services connected, or external works, just a shell that was watertight and plastered, but not second-fixed or decorated. Our host, hoping that a whole bunch of lively, chanting local kids greeting us, a charming prospective teacher, and Victoria's mother, Beth, singing beautifully and for the first time since her daughter's death, would distract our attention from the far-from-finished building. Mike and I had the fearsome, wily local project manager, Rochelle, as the villain of the piece who was possibly misappropriating funds given by us kind, innocent, rich Westerners. We confronted this at a difficult meeting the next morning, at which Caroline and Nigel were obviously upset, but Rochelle was feisty in her denial, and adamant that we did not know what we were talking about. I said I might, because my company designed, built, owned and operated schools in the UK, and my opinion should therefore be more respected. Rashill's indignant argument didn't miss a beat, and we came to an unfortunate and trip-spoiling impasse. The next day, on a pre-arranged tour of the area, we viewed both the beauty and tragedy of modern-day Africa. Primitive villages fed into a lively, bustling town where entrepreneurship was not value-added, but essential to live as inhabitants were buying and selling anything and everything to each other just to survive. I imagined the famous world-class Ivorian footballers Didier Drogba, Yaya Torre and Kolo Torre playing on the uneven mud pitch that formed their version of the village green, where there were hordes of local kids kicking a ball about, dreaming of being their heroes. What should have been a long and beautiful beach was a passable imitation of the Bransome tipping hull, as washed-up rubbish 12 inches deep made it undesirable, if not impossible, to enjoy a walk by the ocean. This man-made carnage was an early indication to me of the environmental crisis that is now all too evident. We then had an appointment to see the fearsome Rachelle at her offices, no doubt for round two of her justification and more invective on the error of our judgment regarding her school project. We were early and shown into a community centre that housed her office, so we took the opportunity to have a nose around in the manner of a sleuth closing in on who done it. I wandered into Rashel's personal space on my own and expected to see plans and architects' impressions of the school, but was shocked and sickened what was actually on display and the focus of her attention. Female genital mutilation as a means to subjugate and demean women is a primitive and barbaric practice apparently still prevalent in this part of Africa and from the pamphlets on Rochelle's desk and the posters on her wall she was obviously campaigning against it as well as overseeing the construction of the school. I came to the conclusion there and then that if any funds were being diverted by Rachel from the school project to this campaign, as I suspected, then that was alright with me. This ballsy little African lady was doing a lot of good, and I decided I would leave her be and cause no more fuss. I would even promote and endorse it if she came clean. She didn't. The School for Victoria was eventually completed by the wonderful charity run by Caroline Ingram, but without further assistance from us. That I regret, but it showed what can be achieved by one woman with passion, persistence, and a righteous cause. Caroline reminded me of my wife Sue here in Hull, with the difference she has made to thousands of animals over the years. The difference in a bobo being that no child would have to follow Victoria Climbier and be in danger abroad in search of an education. Back in my office, with those memories safely and permanently stored on the bottom shelf of the cabinet, the whole structure is now ready to live up to its billing as a trophy case, starting sentimentally and not with any stuff of my own. Dad's prized Beamer Star and other associated war medals, together with his soldier's service and pay book, which became the deserved centrepiece of my collection. Three impressive cut-glass trophies from 70 years later and this millennium adorn the shelf below. In 2007, I returned to my student home city for an evening at Leeds Town Hall with the Institute of Directors at their Director of the Year Awards, where they generously gave me a special award for my overall contribution to the Yorkshire economy. This was a surprise. A whole boy getting something here is like Hull City getting a point at Elland Road. Inside a business magazine collated the 100 fastest growing businesses in the region in 2011. We were in the middle of the building schools for the future delivery and made the list, leading to another visit to West Yorkshire for an award ceremony. I was really pleased about this one because we were in the Sunday Times top 10 places to work at the time and I could now correlate the two i.e. engagement and treating your people well leading to improved productivity, customer delight and growth. What I wasn't expecting was the award for business leadership given at a regional level when we worked largely locally. I was surprised, chuffed and humbled. Our local Hull Business Awards were run by the Hull Daily Mail after many years of cajoling and lobbying from my position at the Chamber of Commerce and the Yorkshire International Business Convention. The contribution of business and biz people needed showcasing and appreciating in our public sector dominated area and the local newspaper was best placed to host and deliver that. Unfortunately, they outsourced the event and it was getting stale and rather trivialised. Enter a new team of Neil Hodgkinson and Mike Pennington appointed by my co-director at YRBC, Steve Auckland. We quickly got together to find we were exactly on the same page. Their energy and can-do spirit quickly turned things around to produce an upgraded event of relevance, but I still felt it lacked one thing in the gravitas of a Lifetime Achievement Award, Allah, the BAFTAs. They immediately created this top award as the finale of the evening, but unfortunately... The bastards gave it to me. The 2013 closing acceptance speech had me berating them for suggesting an epilogue to my career at least a decade prematurely. This is represented by the only certificate in the collection, but it's twinned with a large, impressive trophy with stag-like antlers that will only fit on the top shelf. It is now a useful hook for my Walter White Heisenberg Breaking Bad pork pie hat that still has an occasional embarrassing runout. On an upper shelf, there is a framed message from a newly appointed set of Sewell shareholders and their families. My successor group, as they are technically known. I don't particularly like the term, because I want to work with them to take this company to the next level and reach its full potential. The message thanks me for providing the opportunity, but I thanked them for taking it, and we celebrated a lovely dinner one clear dark evening in the garden room of my home in Cottingham. Bob Craven-Jones and Frank Markham made wonderful keynote speeches, paying heed to the past and respecting the journey we've undertaken. I surprised them by having Elvis appearing in the spotlight out of the darkness and into the dinner to regale us with some of his greatest hits. They surprised me with a lovely film that included contributions from the likes of Rene Carriel, Assi Malam, and Alf Dunbar saying some unbelievably nice things. But seeing the likes of Dave Haywood there meant just as much to me, as did the gift of a symbolic silver birch tree which we subsequently planted to the rear of the property and which I see every day as it grows. It was a nice touch on a memorable night. Laid flat on a middle shelf is a beautiful gold and silver ceremonial sword in a shiny leather sheath, which would be worth a fortune if it wasn't plastic and from Asda. This was procured so that the family at home and at work could take the piss in mock ceremonies related to the next two awards. I honestly can't recall how I was informed that I was to receive an honorary doctorate from the University of Hull in late 2009, but I remember the details around the graduation ceremony in January 2010. Father-in-law George was ill with breathing difficulties from his time in the building industry together with a lifetime of smoking. When he declared himself unable to make it to the ceremony, I knew he must be very poorly. He was so interested in and supportive of my career that he would have been there if humanly possible. As it was, the party was restricted to Sue, Patrick, mother-in-law Audrey and Patrick's wife Catherine. They had to wait until I was enrobed in the splendid sky-blue and red gown with silly mortarboard hats, then for the official pictures with Hull University Chancellor Bottomley before I came into the chamber for the ceremony. The whole thing is built on pomp and ceremony, so it called for an acceptance speech to match. I tried hard, but couldn't resist one bad joke about fellow graduate Nick Bamby. I said that it was thoughtful and appropriate that the university honour two of the greatest footballers to come out of the city, at the same sitting. The audience included a tranche of new graduates, as well as the great and the good, so I wanted to pay respect to the rationale for the award. I therefore concentrated on the entrepreneurial journey, particularly mine. My speech, of course, contained the half a lettuce story. And culminated in me reciting a poem by a William Arthur Ward called "Risk." I thought that a builder, receiving a Doctor of Science honoris causa, reciting a poem, would be a nice touch. I called it the Entrepreneur's Poem. To laugh is to risk appearing a fool. To weep is to risk appearing sentimental. To reach out to another is to risk involvement. To expose feelings is to risk exposing your true self. To place your ideas and dreams before a crowd is to risk their loss. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To hope is to risk despair. To try is to risk failure. But risks must be taken because the greatest hazard in life is to risk nothing. The person who risks nothing, does nothing, has nothing, is nothing. They may avoid suffering and sorrow, but they cannot learn, feel, change, grow or live. Chained by their attitude, they are slaves who have forfeited their freedom. Only a person who risks can truly be free. It seemed to go down Okay but with half the audience sitting behind me, that could be wishful thinking. At the end of the lunch, we all stood to allow the Chancellor to depart first, then we followed her out of the dining room, down the corridors of Staff House, to the muffled sound of a handbell ringing outside. Quietly at first, rising to a crescendo as we emerged into the daylight. I heard the East Riding Town crier before I saw him. Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. He sounded on top form with his resonant voice and accompanying bell echoing round the campus. Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. Changing octave for effect. Dr Paul Sewell is leaving the building. Dr Paul has left the building. He was standing by my car, bell now silent in right hand, feathered cap in left hand and reaching for the floor as his head went into the most theatrical and impressive of bows. He rose back to his full height and met my eyes directly with the biggest grin on his face and twinkle in his eyes. Ronwood's son then closed one of those eyes in a knowing wink as he replaced his hat, straightened it and preened himself, exhibiting total satisfaction with his work. If a big black handlebar moustache could twinkle, then that did too. It was really rather good, and I shall never forget it. Thanks Michael, and remember how much I adored your dad. When we got home we gave George a blow-by-blow account of the day, and he seemed pleased. If very tired of trying to converse, whilst taking oxygen through that horrible face mask. He never complained, and carried on with any job around the place that his health would allow him to do. Mercifully, his heart finally gave up the struggle to drive his laboured breathing three months later, and he died in the same spot in his conservatory where we'd had our conversation. I lost not only a father-in-law, but a best mate. The biggest surprise of all came later that year when we were going out in the car one fine Saturday morning and stopped at the front gates as usual in order to empty the letterbox. I normally deposit the usual pile of junk mail straight into the rear seat to sift through later but on this occasion I noticed an official looking envelope with a crest that meant only one thing to me, another speeding fine. I always open these immediately so I can rage about the injustice of it all for the maximum amount of time. But it wasn't a fine. It was from the Cabinet Office saying that if the Prime Minister was minded to recommend to the Queen that you be made an Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, would you be minded to accept? This was indeed another injustice, but not one that would involve a trip into Hull for a speed seminar where they by now Know me by my first name. This would involve a journey to Buckingham Palace in London, where they wouldn't. Sue and I sat there for an age in stunned silence, which Sue eventually broke. Are you going to accept? She knew my view. These honours are a load of bollocks, mainly going to people for just doing the job they are paid to do, grace and favour and all that. She didn't have to remind me of my views on the honours system, inspired by my hero John Lennon, who very publicly sent his MBE back when I was young. I thought very carefully about how to respond. These honours are of course a load of bollocks, I reiterated, until they offer you one. I backtracked smilingly to Sue. You do think of your family and work colleagues upon which the honour reflects. I thought about George and how thrilled he would have been, and my dad, who would have been nonplussed but quietly happy. What do you think of this then Isaac, I would have said, crap, he should have been a knighthood. I can hear him now. I then set about a process of rationalisation to justify my decision to accept. During my career, when facing situations where my imposter syndrome has had me feeling inadequate or inexperienced, I would just look around and try to find somebody who I honestly thought was better than me. Occasionally I did, but not that often. I applied this logic to my honour conundrum and became more content that I could accept the Prime Minister's kind offer gratefully. I had done my bit in civil society over the years, with roles that I thought passed the day job test. From the early days on the Construction Industry Training Board and the Hull Local Purchasing Initiative, through a decade at the Hull and Humber Chamber of Commerce, including a year as President in 2002, Chair of the Humber Forum Sub Regional Development Agency, which was succeeded in the Humber by the Humber Economic Partnership, Board Member of the Urban Regeneration Company City Build, Hull Local Strategic Partnership One Hull and Preston Road New Deal for Communities. Found a member of Hull Bondholders, graduate of the Hull Common Purpose programme and National Common Purpose, which led to me being a regular contributor in subsequent years. Last but not least, I brought the Yorkshire International Business Convention to Hull and Bridlington from 2004 to 2015 and created Business Week around it in 2005. When recalling and reviewing this lot, I did wonder how I found the time and energy, but it was enough to be going on with and to proceed with my acceptance. Once confirmed, you are sworn to secrecy and that you will honour the honour system by using the title rather than denying it. It was excruciating for an engaged God before brain like me to keep Stum, but I managed it until the day of the birthday honours list announcement of the 10th of June, 2011. By the most delicious of coincidences, this was also the day I was hosting the Yorkshire International Business Convention at Brillington Spa, and one of our guests, the then England cricket captain Andrew Strauss, was also announced as having been awarded an OBE. Having guided the national team from a 5-0 whitewash by Australia, to two back-to-back Ashes victories with the top place in the world rankings. The responsibility of captaincy was evidently affecting his form with the bat, which was frankly awful. He came into the wonderful green room at the Spa, which has splendid picture window views over Brillinson Bay. Welcome Andrew, I'm Paul Sewell and I'll be your host for the day. He took my outstretched hand and replied, Hello Paul, I'm Andrew Strauss. I understand we have called for celebration, was my opening statement. Ah yes, he uttered gingerly. You have seen the honours list. An OBE, I proffered. Yes, that's right, he confirmed. But I felt comfortable enough with this charming and affable man to be a bit mischievous. What did you get it for? He seemed as confused by the question as I'd hoped. Services to cricket, he responded hesitantly. Really? I sounded surprised and left a silence, but so did he, so I felt duty bound to fill it. With the Nicurin? I chanced my arm, but fortunately he smiled. I think we should get out on that beach and give you some practice with the tennis ball. He threw his head back and laughed, and I knew we would get on famously. I didn't let on about my award, but somebody else did after Sir Tim Berners-Lee had regaled us in his keynote address with the story of him inventing the internet, but choosing not to commercialise it. Something that would have made Bill Gates and Steve Jobs look as if they were a pair of paupers by comparison. I was closing the event when Steve Parnaby interrupted me while walking on the stage and stopping my patter. Sorry Paul. Sorry everyone. But we can't close without revealing that Andrew Strauss is not the only one here today to become a member of the Order of the British Empire. I felt myself slowly walking backwards in embarrassment, And he's not a million miles away from here, Steve revealed. Oh shit, I thought. Then a slide appeared on the large screen behind us, on the stage. Dr Paul Sewell, OBE. This was the first time I would see it written down. Although I've seen it lots since, as I slavishly keep to the promise I made upon acceptance. That first time, an attendant ovation from YBC audience was a very special moment in my life. Thanks to Steve P for orchestrating it. The investiture was so delayed that I actually inquired if they had forgotten me or whether I had missed a communication. But eventually the family got down to London courtesy of Hull Trains, who kindly took us for the sake of a picture and a quote. The celebrity realm of product endorsement is here and with us now, I joked. Steve Parnaby gave me the benefit of his experience at his earlier investiture. He advised me to intently look around the surroundings all the time I was in Booking Palace, as it houses the finest art collection in the world. Also, I was not to pick my nose or scratch my ass, for you are filmed throughout for your own personal record of the day. He also advised that my party of Sue, Patrick and mother-in-law Audrey should get into the ballroom early in order to get a decent seat with a good view of the stage. We went through the front courtyard of Buckingham Palace to our designated entrance and I was then split away from the family as they went up the left staircase to the guest reception area. I left them and turned right with a final pang of conscience about Sue's 35 years of selfless dedication to animal welfare with the HAWT, meaning that the wrong one was turning right to receive the honour. Over the years Sue has taught me the benefit of getting people behind a cause and I have no doubt injected some of that into my business. Likewise I hope that I have influenced her to inject some business into her cause hence being a small part of her fabulous success. Success that has hitherto not been properly recognised and I was feeling sore about it on this day. I proceeded for what seemed like miles on my own through the palace corridors, directed by an endless number of flunkies at every corner, finally arriving in our holding area where we were offered a drink to wade the nervous wait for our instructions. A somewhat inappropriate big flat screen TV was giving us a view of the galleried ballroom with families and friends slowly filling the seats in front of the low stage soon to be inhabited by the Prince of Wales and his Gurkha minders. Like everybody else I was looking for the family to see where they were positioned but I couldn't spot them. With the room just about full and no sign of them the Chief Flunky came into the room and asked us to gather around. Welcome and congratulations, he said. The investiture today will be carried out by the Prince of Wales. There was a collective and audible sigh of disappointment that it would not be the Queen. Meaningful glances were exchanged with a rolling of eyes and a slight shaking of heads. Oh, don't be like that, he surprisingly and loyally pleaded. He's a really nice chap and very good at this. It turned out that he was. All that was necessary to know was fastidiously instructed and demonstrated. The steps, the bow, the handshake, the timings and protocol that you fear someone will get horribly wrong, but hope against hope that it won't be you. I glanced up at the screen again, and the room was almost full, with just three empty seats right at the front of the podium, obviously being left for some high-ranking attendees. Where the hell were they? I wondered. I wondered. It was now time to form the line in order of presentation that preceded another slow, endless walk through the splendour. I was placed behind a taller, younger man who was either unfriendly or very nervous. I gave him the benefit of the doubt and broke the habit of a lifetime, proactively introducing myself. He was James Timpson of Timpson's, the national retailer of key-cutting fame, who engraved our dog's ID discs. Well, not him personally, but it felt like that. When I informed him that our dogs were customers of his, he confirmed to me that he was more arrogant than uneasy A lot of it about, as Dad used to say. I looked up to acknowledge that I was thinking about my father, but smiled in recognition of the fact that this would just not be his bag. If he was that uncomfortable at my Leeds polygraduation, graduation, then he would have been seriously wriggly here today. We started the long walk in the straightest of lines, past the last big screen, which revealed my family had finally made it to the designated area, and made it big time, because Sue, Patrick and Audrey were sitting right at the front in the three seats that I thought were reserved for officials or VIPs. Wow, how had this happened? Audrey, with big hat and matching costume, looked a little like the Queen Mother on a good day, i.e. alive, or the Queen on a bad day, i.e. after a few too many sherries the night before. This view was shared by two American tourists on the way in, when on catching sight of Audrey, I heard them exclaim, God it's her, it's her isn't it? I thought of Dad again for some strange reason. Christ Isaac, if they're not touching your peaches, they're insulting my mother-in-law. As the guests gathered in their waiting area, said mother-in-law took a tumble, and found herself on her arse in the most famous house in the country. A chivalrous soul dashed over to help her, and the worst nightmare turned into the best dream, for it was none other than Mr. Darcy. Darcy, without his breeches, ought to be accurate, actor Colin Firth, fresh from his triumph in the film, The King's Speech. A thoroughly charming man, and a worthy commander of the British Empire. Strange who one sees at a bash like this. I spied Phil Collins, but there was no sign of him being honoured, so I postulated that he was a guest. After her tumble, Audrey now needed to go to the toilet, unfortunately deep underground at the palace. Mobility challenges meant this took some time, and when she and Sue eventually emerged, everybody had gone into the ballroom. Getting in so late meant that there were no seats left, particularly for three together. Standing at the back looking forlorn and a little bemused, my family was approached by a senior flunky who took pity on them. There are three seats together up at the front. Let me see what they're reserved for. He came back a couple of minutes later. Nobody seems to know, he said, blowing the facade of professionalism and high security. We don't want that big gap at the front. Come with me. And Sue and Patrick, with the Queen Mother Tribute Act, otherwise known as Audrey, gravitated from potentially the worst seats in the house to the best and a place in posterity in everybody's standard house souvenir photographs. My portion of the lineup entered the room and I looked to my immediate right to see them there. Looking straight ahead, I could see our Mr Timpson being presented and chatting to the Prince who was leaning over him in an interested paternalistic fashion from his perch on the deeply red-carpeted last step of the stage. The wide and deep area behind Charles was now impressively and elegantly populated by more flunkies and military men than would be needed to repel an invasion. The key cutter was now carefully taking three steps backwards to ensure the Prince didn't have to see the back of his head, which then bowed, indicating that Timpson was done, and I was on. I made the dozen or so strides that it took to face the podium. Looked right to wink at my family, then turned to the left as per the rehearsal to face the stage with its small army all looking seriously inscrutable and directly at me as if I might be the threat they were defending the palace against. As I started the movement forward to approach the prince, he spoke warmly, almost as if he did this stuff all the time. Hello, Paul. Thank you so much for all you do in Hull. It's really needed and so appreciated. I had now completed the short journey and stood directly in front of him. In my mind, I had always imagined the royals would speak in an uber-plummy tone and say, Tell me, well, well, what exactly do you do? But it wasn't like that at all, and this prince was particularly well briefed. Your work in regeneration is so vital. Is there any particular area you specialise in? All is with the public sector, sir, I replied wondering if it should have been your majesty rather than sir. He was now pinning the beautiful gold cross with its red ribbon onto my lapel. Schools, health centres, community centres, I kept the conversation moving. You know what I'm like with my architecture, he said after finishing dressing me. Please make these well designed and worth looking at in the future, he pleaded. we Will do, Charlie boy, were the words in my head, but thankfully didn't come out of my mouth. ''I think they are, sir. We have our architects to thank for that,'' was what did. Before I knew it, his gloved hand was outstretched, which was the prearranged signal that it was all over, and I was out of there. I wish I'd asked what it was like being brought up with corgi dogs. What colour their lino was, and whether he'd ever had a good hiding from the monarch. Three steps backwards, trying not to fall over. A right turn and stride off to the side curtained area to pick up the box for the gong. Then it was round the back to join the spectators in time to see the last recipient and a proper hero deservedly get a VC for risking his life to save his mates in Afghanistan. That put it all into perspective really. I joined the family and we went outside into a sunny day and a very professional setup to capture all of the official photographs needed then out of the front gates, through the sightseers, across the road, to the big fountain in the middle of the most famous and ornate roundabout in the world. Here we met grandson Zachary, daughter-in-law Catherine, and our lively, irreverent Danielle. I always have trouble in describing the relationship with Danielle. She has always felt more like a stepdaughter, but is actually a great-niece. We had a lovely family time throwing Zachary around, but suspected that he wouldn't remember any of it. More relaxed posing for photographs with Daniel acting daft and off to a nice lunch across the road where they were used to celebrating new associates of the Empire. Later we visited our long-time favourite London Indian restaurant, Chutney Mary, in Chelsea for dinner. This was hugely appropriate as my late father-in-law George loved it there as much as he would have loved this day. Another book can now go onto the bookcase. It contains the rules, regulations and privileges of an order of the British Empire. I can now arrange to christen Zachary in St Paul's Cathedral. Family members can get married in the chapel there too. I can drive my geese over Westminster Bridge and graze my cattle on Cottingham Green. Pity time act. Who would have thought it? That little boy on the scullery floor and this is what would become of him. Well one thing is for sure, it would not have turned out quite like this without everybody in this book. Thank you all.